You're listening to a People of Note podcast, as heard on Classic 1027. Good evening and welcome to People of Note on Classic 1027 on this Sunday evening. This program, People of Note, goes from 6 until 8 on a Sunday evening. In it, I talk to someone who is a person of note and we listen to music of their choice. My guest in the program tonight is Ruth Everson, who's a poet and a leadership teacher. I think that's a fair way of saying it. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you very much, Richard. Uh, perhaps you could just tell us what being a poet means. It means spending a lot of time wondering about the meaning of life and not writing anything. Uh, people think poets sit under trees and wait for inspiration. Um, that's not true. Poets sweat a lot in the desert and then eventually a poet will come. And uh, the leadership, you, you were a teacher, I think, for many years. I you? was a teacher for 39 years, first at Springs Girls High School and then since Dithian's Girls College in Randburg. And uh, along with teaching of English, of course, my love of poetry and literature uh, in general. But I think it's different being a lover of poetry and being a poet. Yes, very different. Um, because writing poetry means lots of long hours of, as you say, sweating in the desert and finding the right words. Because it's like distilled literature, really. Yes, it's interesting, particularly um, I've, I'm asked to write quite a few commissioned poems and I've just written one for Synstithians which tracks the history from the 6th century, the nun attain through to modern day and I've managed to get that into under 50 lines. So when you talk about compressing and layering meaning, that's the challenge and the joy of poetry really. Yeah. And it's, I'm surprised to hear that people commission poetry. That's actually not something I thought I, one knows about the poet laureate and they have to write uh, on order, as it were. Yes. But I've never thought of commissioning poetry. I get quite a few commissioned poems. Yes. So, um, for example, I was asked to write one for Alistair Stewart when he retired as a head of many years at the Boys Prep. It became a poem called The Good Man. And that traveled. It got enormous um, hits when Kevin Anderson, in fact, stood in front of it. And there was my poem next to Kevin Anderson. And that went viral. But that was a commissioned poem. Yeah. Um, I did some work with the artist Edward Thiel. He's the one who does the Amadiba projects. And he spoke about commissioned poetry, but he also said something really interesting to me. He said he gave up his work as a graphic designer to become an artist. And he says what he does now is he commissions himself. And I think that, that speaks to what I was saying earlier. Actually, you don't have to sit in the desert. You can commission yourself. But I've got lots of commissions coming up, birthday, poems, um, all sorts of things oh, where people want to mark the occasion. Yeah. But obviously you write what you like also. Yes. I mean, you don't always write to commission. You write what you like. Yes. And what you're moved by. Yes. Yeah. And perhaps later in the program you can read us some of the poetry that you've written. Let's listen to your first choice of music, which is by Albert Catelby. Now, we don't often, I have to say, get people choosing Albert Catelby on this program, 
but it's a wonderful piece called In a Persian Market, and it's performed by the Royal Philharmonic Society. That was In a Persian Market by Albert Ketelby, performed by the Royal Philharmonic Society. What is nice about Ketelby's pieces, many of them, is that actually they tell a story. And I guess you are a storyteller in a way too. Exactly that, and that's why I love that piece, because I love traveling. But that piece of music, I've never been in a Persian market, but that piece of music will take me to a Persian market. And yes, definitely a storyteller. So a lot of my poems are around individuals or incidents. Um, for example, a wonderful woman called Nompulelo, an old woman who lived in the Babanango Valley, and I was lucky enough to visit and stay with her for a while. And... I walk down to the river with her, and every day she carries that 20-liter bucket of water. This is a woman in her 70s. And I tried to pick that bucket up, and I couldn't pick it up. And I was struck by the weight of water, and that the weight of water combined with Nompolelo's story became the poem in Sonoli Yamanzi. And I can remember sitting with her and, and saying to her in my arrogant way, thinking that I could do something to help, what can I do for you? And her reply was, educate my grandchildren. Her children had died. She was left with her grandchildren. Yeah. And so here's the poem in Sonola Yamanzi where she goes down to the river every day. But she knows the weight of water. She knows the weight of hunger. She knows the weight of food on a plate. But still, she rises every morning with the stars, with hope in her heart. Yeah. No, these are there are many powerful stories from our country here, South Africa, and we, as South Africans and Africans, actually are live by storytelling. As Africa is a land of stories and storytelling. I think there's a great tradition of storytelling. If you think of of the many people around Africa who've handed down stories from one generation to the next, it's a very oral tradition here as opposed to a written tradition. And it's a pity that it is not more of a, a written tradition. Um, I've got a poem called Sangoma Moon, which is based on a, a wonderful drive through the game reserve. And on one side was the sun setting, and on the other side was the moon rising. And the one was almost reflecting the other. They were both these huge orange discs. And that became that idea of, towards the end of the poem, who is it that will tell the stories? The cooking fires have gone cold, the spears have rusted away, but who will turn their eyes to the stars to tell the stories that still need to be told? And I really am passionate about people telling their stories. And what do you think is the value of poetry or even a poet in today's society? I've been very lucky uh, to meet a contemporary poet called David White. And he writes some phenomenal poetry, but he's got a very interesting job. He goes into companies and he disrupts their thinking with poetry. And in conversation with him, he said to me, if you want to do something, go into a business. Every business, every organization should have a poet or an artist, if you like, in their midst because those are the ones who disrupt the thinking. But also, we're in a world where, what are we? We're nothing but stories. The stories that we tell, the stories that we imagine, 
and the poet can tell the story in a way that you would want to tell it, but perhaps I would not be able to write a musical piece. You could tell your story through music. I can sit in your auditorium and cry at that beauty, but I can write a poem that can bring tears or joy to somebody else because it's reflecting their human experience and their story. Let's hear your next choice of music now, but I want to pick up on what you've just said. Now, after this piece, this is part of the Yellow River Concerto, and this one is called the Ode to the Yellow River. That was the Yellow River, or part of the Yellow River Concerto, that was called the Ode to the Yellow River, Lang Lang with the China Philharmonic Society. The choice of Ruth Everson, who is my guest in People of Note, she's a poet and leadership specialist. But just to pick up one point quickly before we leave it, and you talked about a poet perhaps being a disruptor in society, and I guess in days gone by, the court jester played that role. If you think of uh, also in King Lear, the fool, there were people like that who had a, that was their job, their professional job was to disrupt and poke fun at people also. They had permission to disrupt. If you, in you fact, think that was of, their job. It was their job. Yeah. If you think of the court jester in Lear, he was the only one who would tell Lear the truth. Yeah. And Lear standing out in the, the middle of the storm crying, who is it that can tell me who I am? Well, the only person who really could tell him was the jester. So, yes, truth through, through yeah. comedy, through poetry. And I think in many ways uh, poetry does, because of its conciseness and its... Uh, distillation, it really does go to the heart of things and tell us truths that perhaps we don't see otherwise. Richard, I'd, I'd love to tell you about, um, I sometimes go to lectures at the University of the Third Age at the Rosebank Union Church. And towards the end of last year, Dorothy Ann Gould, I'm sure you may know her, she runs a, a group called JAM. And it's a group of homeless men and she does Shakespeare with them. And I watched these, these men, a range of ages, performing Shakespeare. But at the end, there was a man, perhaps in his 50s, even towards his 60s. I think his name was Josias. And he stood up and he, he recited one of his own poems. And he was a homeless man. And he told his story about being invisible. But the irony of for that moment in front of hundreds of people, his poetry allowing him to become visible. And we've got a, in Johannesburg a tragedy at every intersection. And I look at those young men and I look at the people who are there and I wonder what symphony is in your head, what poem is in your heart. And we don't know. We don't see the Josiahs. They are invisible yeah. to us. And, and in fact, it's very interesting that you bring that up because Dorothy Ann Gould has been on this program and we also had one of those very men on this program. Uh, and he talked about his life. He also came from the East Rand, much as, as you did. He was at, uh, at a private school, actually, but fell on hard times. And his story was extremely moving. Uh, and obviously he could quote Shakespeare he also wrote poetry himself. I think that program of Dorothy Ann Gould's is amazing. And obviously, uh, the, the Shakespeare and the poetry that they write themselves frees them up mm. in a way that other things don't free them up. 
because actually they are complete captives in our society, captives to the way that we live and the way that we expect people to live. Uh, it's an amazing story. I'm glad you brought it up um, because I think Dorothy Ann Gould does a great job with those uh, men and young men. Um, and it shows the value of words and poetry within our society, perhaps something that we don't value too much. Tell us a bit about that, because you've been in the teaching world for a long time. Do people value poetry? It's an interesting answer, yes and no. And as a teacher of poetry, and also as somebody who has traveled around the country and um, overseas and used my poetry, there are two answers. We teach children to hate poetry because we turn it into an exercise in languages of device. So where is the metaphor? What's the effect of the alliteration here? And in fact, what we're doing, if, if I may use a couple of lines from my own poem, Poetry is Dangerous, poetry is rebellion rolling you and the world. Poetry will write your tears in ink. Poetry will hang your soul on barbed wire lines. And when we allow people to feel the rebellion of poetry, look at um, Soroti, Matera, all of our great poets, who in fact, that poem was written for those poets because there, there was a line that I picked up that said, the apartheid government considered poetry to be more dangerous than a hand grenade. And if we teach poetry like a hand grenade, it is dangerous because it changes the way people think, how they see the world, how they engage. If we reduce it to what is happening in line three, then we've lost it and we've lost the poet as well. Well, your next choice is really a very poetic piece of music. It's the Swan from the Carnival of the Animals by Camille Saint-Saëns. And uh, it really is a beautiful poetic piece. Even the shape of the music is a bit like a swan. Here it comes. That was The Swan from the Carnival of the Animals by Camille Saint-Saëns, the choice of Ruth Everson, who's my guest in People of Note. How did you get into writing poetry? Uh, I'm just going to backtrack a little bit onto my choice on The Swan, if I may, and then I'll answer that. I chose a particular artist for that, and you may have been surprised, the André Rue um, choice, because we could have had Yo-Yo Ma doing that. But the first time I heard that piece was at Sun City when he was here doing a concert. And then I was lucky enough to be in Maastricht in August of last year doing leadership and personal development. And the people in Maastricht, most of them pull their noses up at André Rue because he is... He, he's what he is for the common he's a, he's people. He's a popular musician. He's a yeah. popular musician. But that is what I loved because that popular musician brings music to so many people. So that, that was my reason yeah. quite deliberately for that choice. And, and yet, on the other hand, uh, last weekend we had Yo-Yo Ma at Kirstenbosch playing very high-end Bach for 5,000 people. Mm two hours of unaccompanied Bach for 5,000 people. So it's amazing the drawing power of music. Now, I dare say the people who went to Yo-Yo Ma may not go to André Rieu because it's a, like a totally different world. Yes. But I mean, it's horses for courses, really. 
um, yeah. And, and, I think and it doesn't matter as no. long as the message is getting across. Yeah. So it doesn't matter what the poem is, yeah. as long as it's falling into someone's ear. So where does the poetry come from? It comes from really just opening your eyes to the world and seeing what is there and making a connection. Have you always written poetry? Um, I in My first affirmation for writing really was when I was in Standard 5 in those days and I won an essay about a woman who was an 1820 settler and I'm not sure how politically correct that is but I was 10 uh, or 11 um, and the poetry came interestingly enough when I was in high school and I had been beaten by my primary school maths teacher quite literally with a long ruler called Mr. Persuasion and so I just switched off to maths and so maths for me, I needed to do something else. And I discovered that I could write limericks about teachers, pass them around the class and get a response. And I suddenly realized, wait a minute, there's a power in this. Uh, hopefully I've developed beyond that. But it was a very early waking to how people respond to words that are written in a different or a curious way. Interesting that you had uh, a ruler called persuasion. We had, uh, when I was at prep school, a cane. The headmaster had a cane called Rosemary for remembrance. <laughs> and you were invited to go and talk to Rosemary every now and then. <laughs> it, it wasn't a name on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. This was uh, quite no, a, was a vicious, yeah, was a vicious little story. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's uh, in due course, I hope you will read us some of your poetry because I think that's an important part of this program also, is giving a voice to people like yourself as a poet. Now, and talking of um, persuasion, um, one of your other attributes is teaching leadership. Now, that's a different story altogether. Well, maybe it's not a different story altogether because you also have a program called Poetry with Purpose. Mm. So tell us about the leadership side of things and how important that is in our society and how you teach it. Um, it's very hard to teach leadership. I think anyone who says they teach leadership doesn't really understand. Um, for me, leadership is around self-awareness, self-knowledge. And once you have an idea of who you are in the world, then you can do something without really just making it your own agenda. But you can help people to discover who they are. And that's what my yes. purpose is. Okay. Is to find that, that inner working, that inner knowledge. Um, when I was at the at Sinsterdien's Girls College, the the main focus was servant leadership. But Robert Greenleaf says this, and I think it, it's the overarching principle of leadership for me. First you see the need, then the leadership arises. And very often we try to teach leadership in a vacuum. You can't really do that. People will go on a course after seven days, they've forgotten, they put their file on the shelf, they'll come back to it a year later and think, oh, what was that? Don't remember, throw it away. But when you create some kind of purpose, then the person will respond to that. So do you think that leaders are thrown up by particular circumstances? I mean, obviously they have to have some leadership qualities, but you also have to have the circumstances necessary for people to take a lead. It, hasn't history shown us that? That, that, that's where the Nelson Mandela's stand up. Um, that's where, again, to go to the 
absolute opposite end of the scale. Hitler, in his own way, was speaking to a need in the German people. So yes, circumstance will bring out the, the angels and the devils of leadership, and they are both. Look at the modern world today. We are faced by the angels and demons of leaders. Yeah, all around us. Mm. Not only, I mean, I'm talking all around the world, not just in South Africa. Uh, now, your next choice of music is uh, by Pentatonics. Mary, did you know? Just tell us about that. When I first heard Pentatonics, it was the most amazing sound on my ear. It's so, such clarity, so beautiful. And for most of their, their pieces, there's no instrumental in the background. They do all of it. And I love this piece particularly. I know it's a Christmas piece. But that idea of acknowledging the woman and her role and that beautiful line, Mary, did you know when you kissed your baby boy, you, you kiss the face of God. And that idea that as we interact with people, we kiss the face of God. And also it has a very questioning end. It yes. just goes, Mary, did you know? It's yes. just a beautiful end which is left hanging. Yes, and, and left hanging for us as well. What do we bring into the world? What do we birth into the world that we have no idea of where that end point is going to be? So here it is, Pentatonics. That was Mary, Mary, did you know, did you know, sung by Pentatonics, the choice of Ruth Everson, who's my guest in People of Note. That's the program you're listening to on Classic 1027. I'm Richard Cock. We're going to take a short break now, and we'll be back after this. Welcome back to People of Note on Classic 1027. I'm talking to Ruth Everson, who is a poet, and I thought this would be an appropriate time to get her to read one of her poems, and just put it in context for us. Richard, uh, I've chosen a poem called If You Are Quiet, and quite deliberately because we are such a noisy, disjointed world at the moment. But also, so often when I, when I speak at, at conferences or even in small places, poetry almost gives us permission to come back to ourselves, to step away from the busyness and to come back, as music does, into that quiet space. So the poem is called, If You Are Quiet. Still, there must be time, and time, for the old gods, gnarled, gentle fingers, roots dipped in molten core, wait, blue balancing summer skies on a rainbow of green on green. If you are quiet, you may enter in beneath the boughs on moss-slippered praying feet. There they will meet with you, bark-feathered, bright-eyed, quivering with life. If you are quiet, they will let you hear a wild of wind winding itself around the world, whispering the stories of stories of things you always knew. And if you dare, and if you will, you may find the old self, not felled as you once thought, but firm-rooted, branching down, long and strong, to pull the sap from the center of the stone of your heart. Home now, home now, in the roaring silence of yourself. Be brave enough to be still. That was a poem by Ruth Everson, who's my guest in People of Note tonight. 
And I have to say, it's not often that we have poets on this program, but it's really nice to have a poet who can read their own poetry as well. Tell us your process of writing. Do you write every day? I don't write on a piece of paper every day, but I write constantly in my head. So as I was coming here this morning, my head was looking at the world and playing with things. Um, I've got a poem at the moment that's playing, and it comes like a song in my head. And once the song is complete, so even a long poem, I've got one called Saturday Morning in Baha Park, which is a long poem. And I can remember waking up one Saturday morning and thinking, it's here now and writing it. Um, once I've written it, I use handwritten on usually non-lined paper because lined paper guides where restricts you should go, you. Yeah, restricts yeah. you. Um, once I've got that, I'll type it up. Once I've typed it on the computer screen, I'll look at the line lengths, the punctuation, how it paints itself onto the page. And once I've done that, that poem evaporates from my head. So it's played in there for almost a year sometimes. But once it's gone through that final process, don't ask me to stand up and, and say it. Yeah. And you don't change much once you've written it down? Not a lot because I've played it. Yes. It's like listening to a piece of music and you hear the notes. And I'll know if it works the first time I use it in performance. I need the ear of the audience yes. and the heart of the audience to tell me that it works. Okay, now that's another interesting point which we can come to right now, and that is the audience for poetry, because just as musicians write music to be listened to, so poets write poetry to be read or listened to. Do you do public readings? Yes, I do uh, a lot of public work, and... It's, it's wonderful the way people receive poetry. And you're never sure how they are receiving it. I remember um, speaking at the Hilton Festival a few years back. And there was a man in the audience who sat with his arms crossed and his eyes closed. And, I, and the whole time I was focused on, you're asleep. This is going so badly. You're asleep. And he came to me at the end and he said, Ruth, I just want to tell you that I had to close my eyes to listen to the music of your voice and to the words. And that was such an important lesson because we don't know how the poem falls. And I was thinking about you, Richard, this morning and how you don't know, uh, know how you fall within so many hearts. Yeah, and, and most often when... I'm performing, my back is to the audience exactly. anyway. <laughs> and that was, that was the conversation that I yeah. had with Julia yesterday. And we were at your uh, Beethoven's Ninth. And next to me was a friend who was weeping and who wrote about that so eloquently afterwards. Julia on the other side who came out absolutely exhilarated. People even in your choir, Linda Glass, who was crying mm. at the end of that performance. And you don't know. Yeah. Catherine Masfield says poetry, and I think you can replace poetry with music, art, anything that you like. But she says writing poetry is like dropping petals into the Grand Canyon and waiting to hear them hit the bottom. Yeah. And we don't know where those petals land. And so when, when you perform, when your choir, your, your orchestra performs, you don't know what magic you are working in the hearts of those behind you. And so we can say hallelujah to that. Here comes Leonard Cohen with hallelujah. That was hallelujah by Leonard Cohen.
And a very famous piece, sadly, Leonard Cohen died uh, last year or the year before, I think, but that is probably his most famous piece. Uh, also about a poet, David, the great psalmist, featured in that um, piece by Leonard Cohen. And I was just interested in your commenting on how poetry or music affects people differently, uh, because this is something, of course, of which I'm aware when I'm performing, because music is so powerful in touching emotions of people, as I'm sure poets must have realized in in writing poetry too. And I was interested in your saying that you write your poems once they've sort of uh, settled themselves in your mind and then you write them down because there were composers like that, uh, Schubert and Mozart, who wrote down almost perfectly what they had in their minds. But others, and I see your next choice is Beethoven, where he really struggled with that process of coming to the final product. It's good company then, I'll take Mozart. Um, but yes, I think everyone has their, their own way. Uh, I heard a, a famous story once, I'm sure people have heard it before. There's a, an artist and he's standing in his garden and he has his canvas out in the garden and the neighbor walks past and says, ah, oh, see you're working, uh, you're not working today because he's just looking at the canvas. And the artist says, oh no, no, I'm not working today i'm working today and then then um comes past the next day and the artist is painting oh see you're working today no i'm not working today and it's when that pen touches paper when that brush touches canvas that actually you're not working it's the process leading yeah. up to it that is the work but you wanted to say something about Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen also. Yes, and I'm glad you chose that piece because I gave you the option either of Leonard Cohen or Catherine Jenkins, and she's beautiful. But I'm glad you chose him because he this song was very underrated and almost unknown. And he was down and out. This was on the B-side of an album that, that wasn't even looked at. It was originally 80 verses. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that process of it being dis distilled down to four. And I wonder how many people, they'll, they'll all know the tune, they'll know it, but how many, how many people actually know the words? It's quite hard to get hold of his words, but there's, there's one line um, where he talks about it's a blaze of light in every word. Whether it's a broken hallelujah or not, there is a blaze of light in every word. And so this really is a song of hope even in a broken world. And then we talked about uh, Beethoven and the struggle that he had to write his music. That was the Moonlight the Sonata, moon, part of the Moonlight Ludwig Sonata. Von Beethoven, appropriate in this, his 250th year since he was born. And we were talking about the struggle that, that some people have to write down their thoughts, to distill their thoughts. Ruth Everson is my guest in People of Note, and she struggles but mentally before writing everything down uh, do you want to read us another poem have you got another you, one you asked for a musical one yes. so um, i've got this one called bright scale and it's written for my partner julia who plays the piano but won't allow anyone to listen to her um, and so many performers are like that so many of us so many people write poetry but they hide it because 
there's some kind of fear in being seen. Um, in Poetry is Dangerous, which I referenced earlier, um, in one of the first verses it talks about tempting death or derision till the ink tank runs dry. And the moment we present ourselves in a public way, we run the risk of being criticized, derided in some way. But Julia plays the piano. Um, a while back, I, I took it upon myself to move the piano. I, I can see you shivering with horror at the thought of moving a piano um, and actually cracked my rib doing it because the piano was the very heavy. Yeah. Yes. Um, and the dog got stuck in the door, but we won't talk about that. But this poem, called Bright Scale. There is music now. There is music now. The old piano is loosening its fingers, sending bright-scaled notes flying down the passage, circling the butter-bright roses, dream-tickling the snoring spaniel, dancing adagio across the sun-deep garden. A weaver plucks a major key from the singing air. A thrush gulps orange notes, winging them to magic kingdoms. A hoopoe pulls them, wriggling from the soil. There is a rise and fall to the day as the old piano plays its heart and my song begins its own soft hum. And I think at the end of that, that sense, when we play our own heart, our own instrument, it gives people the freedom to speak their own heart. That was a poem by Ruth Everson, who's my guest in People of Note. And we're going to have another piece of music before we take a short break. And this is the famous Impossible Dream. I've performed this piece many, many times, uh, very often with a background of Nelson Mandela in a, in a picture because he had a sort of impossible dream, which he eventually realized. It's from The Man of La Mancha. Here it comes, The Impossible Dream. That was The Impossible Dream from The Man of La Mancha, the choice of Ruth Everson, my guest in People of Note. We're going to take a short break now, and we'll be back after this. Welcome back to People of Note on Classic 1027 with me, Richard Cock. This program is broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8, and tonight I'm talking to Ruth Everson, who is a poet and a leadership teacher or leadership draw out maybe we should say because one of the things you do is poetry with purpose just tell us what that is it's um looking at the world and trying to find the niche that is your purpose and once you know what your purpose is then you can go forward and make the difference as we said earlier so there's no point in just saying oh well i've been on a leadership course and now i'm a leader anybody can wear a badge um, in fact, I, I have an issue, and this will be controversial, with kids who wear badges because when they go into the corporate world, they don't go out with a big string of badges saying, this is who I am and this is what I've done. You have to be that person, and once you are it, people will call you that without having to wear the badge. So it is to find that purpose and then to live that purpose well enough that it makes a difference for other people. And one of the people who did that in our country is Nelson Mandela, and you've got a poem about him. I was very lucky with this poem. I was told not to put this poem in this collection, Landscapes of Courage, and I insisted. And it ended up being performed by uh, two St. Dillian's pupils at Mandela's Houghton home in the centenary celebration year. And it's called Medieval Nine, 
when I looked up the size of Madiba's shoe, it could be a 9 or an 11. Uh, I believe from family perhaps it was an 11, but I've kept it as Madiba 9 in the poem. You could buy a pair of shoes, size 9, that would fit the feet of this man, but you will not walk in them. You will not smooth the quarry stones into the long road of forgiveness or write in blood words of love. This man's foot shifted the dying dust, lifted from lost, tired, tattered hope. This man unraveled the blackness to free the barbed, bound, wounded rainbow, held it high and wonder-wide for all to see. If you would dare, to walk in this man's shoes. You must stride alone towards your truth, believing that perhaps, just perhaps, one other will come to walk at your side. That was a poem called Mandela Nine by Ruth Everson, who's Madiba my guest. Nine. Madiba Nine. Madiba Nine. Yeah. Madiba Nine uh, by Ruth Everson, my guest in People of Note. And perhaps it's time now for John Williams. This is the theme from The Godfather. That was the theme from The Godfather, music by John Williams. The choice of Ruth Everson, my guest in People of Note. Ruth, do you think we have uh, an unusual number of leaders in South Africa? I don't think we have enough. Not enough. No. We have lots of people who think they're leaders. Yes, uh, but people actually rolling up their sleeves standing up that standing up for the truth waiting for one other to come and walk beside them no we i don't think we have enough of those people enough real leaders real leaders yeah yeah because yeah, we've got plenty of people who shout their story from the rooftops but they're not necessarily leaders mm. do you think leaders are born or can leaders be made uh, that's a, a question that often comes up and it is debatable and I think both. I think we are born with, you know, the Romans talked about their genius and that was their, their better spirit, their angel that they were born with. Um, is it uh, Antony and Antony and Cleopatra who says, you have rebuked my genius, you've taken my power away from me, this, this great man. And so I think we are born with a potential to lead with a certain character but I think we can be taught to react in a better way. Again, going back to understanding who we are within the context of the world and how perhaps leadership can be as small as learning somebody's name or acknowledging somebody for something that they have done. It doesn't have to be on the top of a mountain. It's, it's small acts, repeated acts of kindness and observing noticing one another just seeing one another that's leadership so you don't have to be a big character or a big person to be a leader you can take the lead in many small ways as you were saying and in fact that's what we need in south africa i'm thinking of the starfish you know you can save one one starfish but for that starfish that's really important although there may be millions dying on the seashore I think, Richard, it also takes a generosity of spirit. I know that my journey began, ironically, uh, a, a young woman called Fiona Veach, who's now a, an author in London, but she was in my class at Springs Girls High School, and met her again down the line. She was working for the Grahamstown Foundation 
and for Janet Buckland. And you, you know who Janet and Andrew Buckland are. And Fiona said to me, Ruth, why don't you do something? And I was called to step up. I didn't ask to step up. In her generosity of spirit, she asked me to step up. But when you've been asked to step up, then you need to show up. And I think there are so many people that I've come across in my journey who once they have a generosity of spirit. I was so struck, um, Richard, by a young man at your Christmas uh, Christmas Carol concert. And you called him up. He, he sang. I can't remember his name. Yes, Siabonga Makungo. That's yeah. right. And you told the story of how he'd come to you and he was late and he arrived in the studio sweating. But he's in Berlin now. Yeah. And he's there because of your generosity of spirit. Yeah, there, I think there's definitely something of that in it. And advising people the way to go at the right time. Just giving them a helping hand, basically. Yeah. No, it's a wonderful story, that. And he's been a guest on this program also. Mm. Siabonga Makungo. And in fact... Um, he's just been in South Africa singing at Starlight Classics in Cape Town. And he really has created an amazing career for himself. Well, obviously with a bit of help here and there. But he's really taken the bull by the horns and he's doing what he wants to do, which is wonderful. And I think let's hear now the Exodus theme. This is uh, from that amazing film. Exodus. That was the Exodus theme, the choice of Ruth Everson, my guest in People of Note here on Classic 1027. And then I see coming up, Bridge Over Troubled Water, a message for us here in South Africa, I should think. Yes, and also the music of my teenage years. One of the first vinyl albums that I bought, because that's what we had, was that Bridge Over Troubled Water album. Uh, the first one I ever bought was Petula Clark, Don't Sleep on the Subway. But Bridge Over Troubled Water, and they were the great poets of our time, Simon and Garfunkel. And listening to them, I can see myself still sitting in, in the lounge on a Saturday afternoon and that record playing and just thinking again and again and again the beauty of the words as they wound their way into my heart and my soul. And there, there's music that just becomes part of the, of the weave of who you are and that's one of those pieces well me. and there were lots in those days i think of uh, joan Byers and bob dylan i mean yes. they wrote powerful words yes yeah which they then performed to music as well here it is bridge over troubled water simon and garfunkel's great hit bridge over troubled water the choice of ruth everson my guest in people of note and then i see you've got the Ndlovu youth choir that's another story, actually, of incredible leadership. Uh, Ralph Schmidt, who runs that choir, took them from nothing to being sort of world beaters. And that's why I chose that piece, because having taught for 39 years, what do we do if we don't empower our youth? And I think that's really, as a country, where we're stuck at the moment. The unemployment is so high. What can we do to give people their voice and he was able to do that for them on a world stage and he's given the country a voice because we we are known in a different way now through them but I also love the way that that whole community the grannies who do the beadwork and the whole community that is so proud of what their young people have achieved and to take an artist like Ed Sheeran 
who turned 29 this week. How can he only be 29? But to take an artist like Ed Sheeran, to change the shape of him, and then to use that song to change the shape of how we see ourselves and how they see themselves, that for me is a story of inspiration. And here it is, The Shape of You, a song by Ed Sheeran, performed by the Nlovo Youth Choir under Ralph Schmidt. That was Ed Sheeran's song, The Shape of You, as performed by the Nlovo Youth Choir, directed by Ralph Schmidt and the choice of Ruth Everson, my guest in People of Note. And I see, Ruth, uh, your last two choices, Climb Every Mountain and Sunrise, Sunset, are really from musicals. You obviously like musicals, too. I love musicals. I was uh, part of the Springs repertory players, on stage or backstage. Um, I was part of, there was a, a magnificent teacher in Springs called Dennis Watson, who put on all sorts of, of musicals. And really my growing up in my, my, it was only when I came to Johannesburg that I couldn't find a voice on stage here. And so those, those musicals, you, the overture, when you sit in a theater and you hear that overture and you just know what's coming, it, it does something to my heart. So, so many great musicals that have really influenced who I am. And have you written something about musicals? I haven't. I've written uh, scripts for school plays, yes. and but I haven't written anything about musicals. Yeah. Perhaps I should. But have they been? Have your scripts been performed for school? Yes. So not yeah. not major. But within a musical, or were they just straight plays? Straight. So musicals. So, musicals, so yeah. threaded with the music yes. uh, between the my words and the yeah. music. Yes. Because it's an amazing combination, of course, music and words. I mean, music by itself is powerful, but music with words is even more powerful, which is what uh, church music is all about and why it's so powerful, because it links these two powerful uh, means of expression. And I've often sat in the Linda and listened to your music and heard my words against the music. In the silence of my head, they have been uh, a symphony together. And you're right, they, they, call, they call us to cry and they call us to joy. And there's nothing more powerful than, yeah. than that. And here come two pieces now from musicals, Climb Every Mountain and Sunrise Sunset. Wooga Papama. You must believe that you can rise. Vulga Papama, get up, get up. Shed yesterday's memory-muddled sheets. This is not the time for sleeping. Life is flowing under the tired mattress. Beyond the dark, tight night curtains, a furious sun is beating. Leave the bed, heavy with old excuses and hungry hurts. This is the time for courage. Woza, woza. Grass is springing up between the floorboards. The fearful house is flooding away. You know that you must rise. Vuga Papama, get up. It is time. Sunrise, sunset. The final choice of Ruth Everson, who's been my guest on People of Note. That's a program we've been listening to on Classic 1027. And it just remains for me to say thank you to Ruth for coming into our studios. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. It's been a great pleasure having you on the program and also to Mataba Taba Hadebe, who's helped us put the program together. And of course, to all of you at home who've been listening to this program of People of Note here on Classic 1027. Until next time, from all of us here, we wish you a very good night. <laughs>